Well, it is good to be here and to preach the Word of God. Every time I have a privilege to preach, I feel like I'm a relief pitcher caught in from the bullpen. Of course, not that Brother Jack needs a relief pitcher, or, or Dr. Jack, that is. But I do cherish the opportunity to preach the Word of God today to you. In preparation for preaching, there are several things that we all need to do. One for sure is that we have to pick a passage and we have to study it, which makes sense. The other, one of the other most critical things that we need to do is pray. Richard Baxter, a pastor, once stated that prayer must carry on our work as well as preaching. He said that he who does not pray earnestly for his people is one who does not preach heartily to them. He stressed the importance of prayer in the preacher's life. But prayer just isn't important in the pastor's life. It is important in all of our lives. Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we need to be praying without ceasing. Paul also says in Ephesians 6.18 that we need to pray at all times and all occasions. But unfortunately, prayer is minimal. We could ask each other, we could talk to each other, we can talk to the, the church as a whole around the world and try to evaluate how often we pray, and it's very minimal. Many of us take the privilege of prayer and crumple it up and throw it into a wastebasket instead of praying continually. When I was a freshman in college, this became evident of my own lack of prayer. I, uh, when I was a freshman, I went to Cedarville College in Ohio. And I had a friend there, actually became my best friend. I never had really a best friend. And um, I don't know if guys do. Maybe, I think some guys do, but I never had a best friend. And, and I was two, it was two, two months in, and, and my friend, Scott, we used to go down uh, to dinner together every night. And uh, so I went down and knocked on his door, but nobody was there. Knocked, knocked again, no response, and checked in the bathroom, wasn't there. And so I was like, well, I don't know where he's at, so I'll just go down to dinner. And so I, picked, I met some friends, and we went down, and, and I was waiting to see him down there. But he never showed. And I was wondering where he was at. So I went to the volleyball game that, that they had that night at the school, and I was there, and somebody came up to me and says, John, you know what happened to your friend Scott? I said, no, what happened? And they said, they told me that uh, he had to take him to the hospital. I said, really? And so I was like, well, I, I, was, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But, so I, I called the hospital. I was able to get the number and called the hospital. And as I, got, I called, somebody answered the phone. And they said that my friend, um, when somebody was playing, he was playing soccer, and somebody missed the ball, and they need his head instead. And his skull collapsed. And he could die at any moment. And uh, needless to say, it was, it was shaken up. But needless to say, it was, it was a big trial, especially in Scott's life. So I came back, and here I am. You know, I never I really had a close friend. The only friend I ever, you know, that was close could die. And so I came back, and I talked to my RA, and I talked to the other people that were in my wing and in my dorm room, that, in my, the hall of my dorm. And I never forget what they did. They just got down on their knees and started praying. These older godly Students of mine at college just started praying. It was a Christian college I went to, and these older students taught me a great lesson. And then not only did that, they, they got everybody in the hall, and we all started praying. After we were done praying, we went over to the hospital. We had a chance to, 
to minister. And his parents weren't there. They, they were from New Jersey, and so that was a good drive. And, um, but we were to pray with the other students who were there. And in that week that followed, I never saw so many people come on their knees before the Lord, begging him to save Scott's life. Well, to God be the glory, Scott fully recovered. By a miraculous chain of events, he, he was fully recovered. And actually, he's in a ministry today. But what is so significant about that time is that it pressed upon me the importance of prayer. It impressed upon me my lack of prayer. My, my not, it wasn't my natural desire to always get down and just pray for the whole time. Sometimes I had a natural desire to talk about things instead of going to God. Prayer has been so, been so um, beneficial in my life my parents continually tell me that their friends, these, these older saints, these saints that are in their 70s and 80s, constantly pray for me. Saints that I don't, even, I, haven't, I don't have a chance to talk to in years. And yet they're on their knees and they're daily petitioning the Lord for me every day. Makes you wonder, what am I doing? And for a whole church, why, why don't we tap into prayer? I mean, how, what is your prayer life like? Do you pray one minute, ten minutes, fifteen minutes a day? Do you pray just when you're before a meal? Do you pray in the shower? I mean, I mean, what what is it? How are you praying? Prayer is so significant because we are dependent people who need to go to an all-powerful God. Charles Spurgeon once stated that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Great word picture. John MacArthur said that for Christians, prayer is like breathing. He goes on to say, unfortunately, many believers hold their spiritual breaths for long periods, thinking brief moments with God are sufficient to allow them to survive. The fact is, every believer must be continually in the presence of God, constantly breathing in His truths to be fully functional. We have the privilege of prayer. And yet a lot of times we don't tap into it. But why? Why Why do people, why do we forsake prayer? It's, for one thing, it's not because prayer doesn't work. J.C. Ryle, he made this great statement in his book, A Call to Prayer, on how God answers to prayer. And this is what he said. Prayer has obtained things that seemed impossible and out of reach. It has won victories over fire, air, earth, and water. Prayer opened up the Red Sea. Prayer brought water from the rock and bread from heaven. Prayer made the sun stand still. Prayer brought fire from the sky on Elijah's sacrifice. Prayer overthrew the army of Sennacherib. Prayer has healed the sick. Prayer has raised the dead. Prayer has procured the conversion of countless souls. Prayer works. God answers prayer according to his will. So what is it? Why, why don't we pray? I think the main reason is many of us, and as Christians, we, we disobey the, the command and we don't tap into the privilege we have to pray. We can never say that prayer wasn't it, something that Jesus did. We can never say that if we're Christ-like as Christians, that we, have to st- we, we can't pray because Jesus prayed. He was a man of prayer and he prayed. Time won't permit us to do an exhaustive study of all the times, at all hours, and all days that Jesus prayed. But he 
the Son of Man, the Son of God, was a man of prayer. Pretty significant. Just for some references, Mark 135 states that now in the morning, having risen a long while before the daylight, he went out and he departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed, so he got up before dawn. It says in Luke 5.16, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Jesus often prayed. He goes on in the book of Luke, and Luke mentions that in Luke 6.12, Jesus prayed all night long. Also in Luke 11.1, 1, it's so significant. His disciples came to him and asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And why was that? Because they saw him pray. They knew he prayed. They saw his example of prayer. And so they wanted to come to the master prayer teacher and learn from him. He prayed for Peter in Luke 22 and he prayed for you in John 17. So needless to say, he is the best example, the best teacher of prayer. So let's step into his classroom today to earn a degree in prayer. And I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. And we'll see Jesus as we have never seen him before in his life, in his prayer, when he was in agony in the garden. J.C. Ryle, which I already have quoted, this is what he says about this passage in Luke 22, 39. He says, It is a passage of Scripture which we should always approach with peculiar reverence. The history which it records is one of the deep things of God. While we read it, the words of Exodus should come across our minds. Put off thy shoes from thy feet. The place where you stand is holy ground. So please follow along with me as I read Luke 22 and verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pretty significant event. Prior to this event, Jesus had just been in the upper room with his disciples he was in the upper room at what is known as the time of the Last Supper. And during this time, things began to disintegrate, at least in our eyes. Judas left to betray Jesus. The disciples fell to infighting. Jesus prophesied failure for Peter and the rest. And his final words were misunderstood due to the dis disciples' abysmal spiritual dullness. It was a bleak time for Jesus. Judas betrayed him, and his disciples were about to leave him. Peter was going to deny him. And Jesus left the upper room on his way 
to the Mount of Olives and a place on the mount known as the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus arrived at the garden, we look down here at verse 40, and it says that when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He, he knew what was going to happen. It says in John that he knew exactly what was going to happen. And he knew that the Sanhedrin and the leaders in Jerusalem were going to come and take him. And so he wanted his disciples to pray so they wouldn't enter into temptation, so they wouldn't fall away, so they wouldn't abandon him. Because he knew that if the Sanhedrin was going to take him, then maybe the, his followers also. After he told them to pray, it says in Matthew and, Mark, and, and Mark's account that Jesus took James and Peter and John and took those three a little further in the garden. And we start to see what was going through Jesus. It says... In Matthew 26, in verse 37 and 38, it says that his soul was beginning to be very distressed and troubled, and that his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. So he told the disciples, remain here and watch. Jesus' soul was at the point of death. He could have died on the spot because of the agony of what was proceeding on his death upon the cross. The agony he bore in the garden was literally sufficient to kill him. And it might have if God hadn't preserved him until a couple, another day for his work upon the cross. Jesus knew all the taunting, all the mocks, all the spit, all the humiliation of what was going to happen. And he knew ultimately the crushing divine wrath that would fall upon him on the cross. He saw the shadow of the actual cross upon him, and he shuddered at this terrible ordeal. He was at death's door, which was wide open, waiting for him to go through. Have you been there? Have you ever been in a trial? Have you ever been to a point of death? Have you ever had anything go wrong? What about when things go right? What do you do? What did Jesus do? Look in verse 41 here at the end. He says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down. And what did he do? He began to pray. When things went wrong, who was the first person he turned to? His father. What was the first message he cried out? He cried out to the throne of grace. This is where he picked up the narrative. This is the background of what we're going to look at today. The time in the garden was about midnight. It was at the end of a hectic week and a busy day. But Christ had business in the garden that was more important than sleep, and nothing would deter him from going to pray. Today, you are going to see how your Savior handled adversity, and following his example, you will learn three characteristics of how you are to pray, so that you may pray like the master of prayer, Jesus, worshiping him fully in the access he provided through his death upon the cross. Today, you're going to see three characteristics of how to pray. So you may pray like Jesus. You will learn that you need to pray genuinely. Secondly, you will learn that you need to pray accurately. And finally, you will learn 
that you need to pray tenaciously. Genuinely, accurately, and tenaciously. And so look down here at verse 42 as we dive into the first point where we see that Jesus prayed genuinely. Verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. His petition was that if his father was willing, he wanted him to take this cup from him. But what is this cup? And how does it show he prayed genuinely and honestly? You know, this cup, this, this phrase, this cup, isn't the little cups we just drank communion out of. That's not what he's referring to. It's not a coffee mug. It's not a cup you get a Frosty and a Wendy's. It's not like that. This cup was a symbol of something. Some people take it that Jesus was asking, when he asked about the cup, that he said Jesus was begging his father to take away physical death. And they say the cup refers to physical death. Others say it refers to the physical pain upon the cross. Others say it was the torture of having nails driven through his, his hands and his feet that Jesus was shrinking back from. But you know, I wasn't any of those things, in part. Because in Luke 12, 4, Jesus tells the disciples and, and those around, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after, th- after that, have no more that they can do. He says, don't be afraid of physical death. Don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. Well, what does he say? A couple of verses later, he says, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Clearly, what Christ dreaded most about the cross, the cup, as it says here, from which he asked to be delivered, if possible, was the outpouring of divine wrath against sin. Christ asked his father if it was possible for him to avoid the divine judgment, the divine wrath. What's so significant is that when Christ was on the cross, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And all the sins of everyone who would ever believe were placed upon Jesus Christ. And what are the consequences of sin? Death. Because of our sin was placed upon him, Jesus was going to face, and he did face, the full divine wrath. He faced the divine fury. In some mysterious way, in a remarkable way, the God the Father turned and forsook His Son upon the cross. This is what Jesus was praying that might pass. This is the cup that might pass. One commentator, Sir Matthew Hale, states that Christ stood under the imputation of all our sins And though he was personally innocent, yet judicially and by way of imputation, he was the greatest offender that ever was. He knew that he was going to have all the sins placed upon him. 
That is why he asks, please, may it pass. Jesus knew what he, what he came to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. He lived so he may die. So why would he ask the prayer? And this is where we see his genuineness. This is where we see his honesty. In his humanity, he gave an honest expression of the dread he was feeling at the moment. This prayer was simply an expression of human passion. This passage shows his humanity like no other passage. Jesus Christ experienced every infirmity of human nature that we go through, except for sin. He felt hunger, he grew weary, he suffered pain, and here in the garden, he experienced the deepest kind of sorrow and dread and troubling of his soul, even to the point of death. And he honestly, with that thought of mind, he came to his father and said, Lord, if it is possible, please let it pass. He prayed genuinely. Jesus had no masochistic love of suffering. That would be something, there would be something inhuman about him if he... If, if he did not look forward to the cross with a deep uneasiness and dread of what was to come. We would do the same thing. Jesus had a real desire to avoid the wrath of God. He was grieved because he knew that all the guilt of all the sin of all the redeemed of all time would be imputed on him. And he would bear the full brunt of divine wrath on behalf of others. The Holy Son of God who had never known even the most insignificant sin, would become sin and the object of God's fury. And with that thought in mind, he shrank. He, in his humanity, he begged God that it might pass. He prayed genuinely. He was honest. And that's the same, same exact way we should pray. An example of this is found in Luke 18. And in Luke 18... There is a tax collector. And it says, when the tax collector prayed, he got down and he wouldn't even look to heaven. And this is what he said. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was genuine. He knew he was a sinner. He was honest before the Lord. Many times people put a a facade on their lips when they go before the Lord. It's interesting sometimes when you talk to people how they pray and sometimes they say, for example, say someone has a problem with stealing and they go, Lord, help me not to steal. I don't really like it. When sometimes the, the reality is, is guess what? They do like to steal. That's why they're doing it. So they should go to the Lord and beg Him that they wouldn't like to steal. They would hate it. You know, now this isn't always the case, but when we go before the Lord... We need to be genuine. We need to not put a, a facade on our lips and not a facade on our hearts. We have to go before the Lord in humility. He knows what's on our heart anyway. We have to come clean, purifying ourselves through confession. We need to pray like Jesus did in genuineness and in honesty. Now, when we pray like that, it's tempered by the second way we have to pray, which is that you are to pray accurately. And what do I mean by that? Is sometimes people may come before the Lord and they're, they're, they're so honest, like, Lord, we don't like you and all this stuff, and they, they, I can't believe you're doing this. But if they're praying accurately according to the will of God, they want to do that. 
Jesus prayed according to the will of God. He prayed accurately. That is how we are to pray. Look down with me here at verse 42. Jesus, in his humanity, in his dread of facing the divine wrath of God, knowing what it would entail, what did he say? Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That is so great. That is, one of the, that is probably one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. This is amazing. Jesus was caught between two desires. One desire he had, which was fine, was his human desire, which what? He, he, he didn't want to face alienation. He didn't want to face the wrath and the death. But he also had a desire to do God's will, whatever it costs. And guess what? He chose the best. He did his Father's will. Linsky, a commentator, says, From the first word onward, the son's praying was the most perfect submission to his father's will. Even a mere hint that he could not or in some way would not submit is absent. Now, a question you may be wondering, which is, which is a good question, is, well, if he was God, how, how did he have two different wills? I mean... What was going on here that he had two different wills that he said, not my will, but yours be done? And what's so unique about this passage is it explains the truth that our Lord had two wills, a human and divine will, for he was 100% man and 100% God. Now, I can't really explain it much better than that. All I know is the scripture says it's true, so it's true. He was 100% God and 100% man. Something that my feeble mind is, is somewhat incomprehensible for me. Amazing. But as, as a perfect man, he shrank from, the, from what was coming in his will. But as the, because he wanted to unite his will with his Father, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus never ever in his life deviated from his Father's will. One passage in John 8, 28 and 29, this is what Jesus said. He says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus, God, submitted himself to his Father. Even as the agony intensified here, as each passing moment, it got, grew more and more. He still prayed according to the will of God. You know what? This is so significant, this passage. There's a great lesson to be learned here. If Jesus Christ, who had no appetite for sin, no desire to go against his Father, no inclination to do wrong, had deliberate and purposeful dedication to his Father, how much more we should surrender our hearts, our minds, our soul, our wills to God. If he who had no desire to do wrong, yet desired to have his will submit to his Father in this intense time, how much more we should consciously submit to the will of God. We need to pray according to the will of God. Do you pray like that? Jesus did. Submission of will like this one 
is one of the brightest graces which can adorn the Christian character. That is submission to the will of God. It is one which a child of God ought to aim in everything if he desires to be like Christ. He who can say from his heart when a bitter cup is before him, not my will, but thine be done, has reached a high position in the school of God. Do you pray like that? Do you pray according to the will of God? When you have that bitter cup in front of you, when you have a trial or in anything in your life, do you pray according to the will of God? Jesus did. And you may ask, well, John, how can I pray according to the will of God? Well, let me give an example. All right. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse three. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's God's will. So if you are praying and asking God that you will be sanctified, you're praying according to the will of God. Makes sense, right? Where's God's will found? Right here. The word of God. So if, you are, so if you pray according to what the Bible says, you're praying according to the will of God. Just on a side note, one of the, one of the greatest joys I have is when I, I get into prayer, I open up the book of Psalms or I open up a, a section of Scripture that talks about who God is, specifically giving, listing all His attributes. And I, I enjoy reading that and, and, and just praising God, reading that out loud. Because I want to praise my God, and I want to praise Him accurately. And I know if I'm reading the Word of God, it's accurate. And so I know I'm giving full glory and full honor to God. But let me ask you a question. How do we pray according to the will of God in things that aren't necessarily laid out in Scripture? Like who you're supposed to marry? What college should you go to? What job? Should we move? Should I give that thing to somebody else? Should I help that person out? Should I, get, should I get this kind of car? Should I get this truck? Should I visit my relatives today or not visit my relatives? What, what are we doing those? And what I appeal to you is that every time you pray, you pray that God's will will be done. For example, how about if a person is sick? A person is, has cancer. Now we know if, if that person, we would love to see that person healed. We would love it. We would absolutely adorn the reality of that if that happened. And so a lot of times when we pray, we pray, Lord, please heal that person. But we we leave off the part, if this is your will. The reason I say that is this. It may actually be greater, it may mean greater glory for God for that person to stay sick. Now, I'm not saying I don't pray for people to be healed. And people are sick and things of that sort. But when we pray, our, the, the motif of our prayer should be an utter submission to the Lord, that, oh Lord, if it is your will, please heal that person. Look at the Apostle Paul. It says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Paul, he says, he, Paul says, I, I pleaded with the Lord three times. I, he pleaded with the Lord three times, his father, um, God the Father, to take that thorn away from him. Now, I don't know if you ever have had a thorn. Any of you guys have rose bushes? You know, they have little thorns on them, okay? And when you, when you get stuck in your skin, that hurts a little bit. But a thorn back in Israel's time was a big thorn. And if it went in your side, that would not be fun. This last week, I just had canker sores in my mouth, and they've been killing me. 
And that's just a little canker sore. And see, Paul is saying he had, a, he had a thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he pleaded with the Lord. And what was the Lord's response? Nope. Not taken away, Paul. In fact, I'm, you're going to have it. But you know what God said? My grace is sufficient for you. And that's why Paul could say, when I am weak, then I'm strong. And God was able to put on a greater display of his grace because Paul was suffering from that thorn in the flesh than he would have been if it had been removed. That is significant. And so when we pray, we need to pray according to the will of God that if it's his will, things should be done. I mean, for example, I know when I was in college, I kept praying that God may provide a wife. And for a long time, it wasn't his will. And finally, it became his will. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that, you know, and that's great. And those things happen. But we need to always have the tenor that we pray according to the will of God, because Jesus did. So we need to pray genuinely, accurately, and finally, you need to pray tenaciously, fervently. Look down with me here in verses 43 and 44. It says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus was in so much agony, his sweat was coming off him like great drops of blood. Now, time won't permit to go into if it was possible for blood and sweat to mix and so on and so forth. It's interesting. Most commentators that I read all take it that Jesus actually sweat drops of blood. But you know what's interesting? Look down at verse 44. There's a little word right before the word drop. And it's the word like, a simile. His, his sweat became like drops of blood. It doesn't say it was. It just said it became like. And so I, I don't think it was actually sweating drops of blood. But the point is, it doesn't change. Does that change how much he was in agony? No, he was in agony to the point of death. Does it change how intensely he was praying? No. He was fervently praying. Look, look, please, look down again. What does it say? Being in agony, did he stop praying? No, what did he do? He prayed fervently. When the time was tough, he prayed even more fervently. Even though his mind and his soul and his, his whole being were shrinking in his humanity from the coming cup, this divine wrath, he prayed even more fervently. He didn't give up. He was like Rocky in all his movies. He didn't give up. And as, as the bulletin says, no pain, no gain. Jesus prayed. Sometimes we don't often feel like praying. But prayer doesn't depend upon feeling and comfort. It is sometimes difficult and involves sweat and tears. And Jesus, however, knew the intensity and difficulty of prayer that we shall never experience. Is it hard to pray? Jesus, the man, knew it was hard. And he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He is able to assist us 
Jesus, in agony more than I'll ever go through, prayed, and he prayed fervently. We always need to pray, no matter how hard, no matter how much is on our schedule, no matter how much things are on our plate, we need to pray. J.C. Ryle mentions that it is a prime device of Satan to supply the afflicted man with false reasons for keeping silence before God. When times get tough, look to Jesus' example. When, when your work schedule gets so busy, when you're taking your, your children to school, you're taking the games, you're taking your grandchildren to games, you have to go to all these events, prayer is still important. And you still need to pray, and pray tenaciously. You know, one, t- one place that I see this happen a lot is with college students, where people, you know, in high school or um, even the seminary, they have so many things on their plate. They have, they're working, maybe they're engaged, or you know, maybe they're, they're dating somebody, or they're, they're in an extracurricular activity. And what happens? Finals come around, and they stop praying. They stop spending time in the Word. They go, oh my goodness, if I, if I, don't, if I don't study, I'm going to fail. And if I fail, my parents get mad at me, and, and my parents get mad at me. It's not good. And, and if I fail, well, then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll drop out of high school. I won't pass college. And you see... They work themselves up. Instead of tapping in to the resource that we have in our tough times, they leave it. They leave the all-powerful God and try to do it in their own strength. Martin Luther, somebody you all well know, do you know what he did? It says that he prayed two hours every day. But on a day when he expected to be extra busy, he increased his prayer to three hours. The more busy he was, the more he prayed because the more he knew he needed his father's help. Does that characterize you? Are you tenacious? Are you fervent in your prayer? The more difficult the time, the the more strenuous your schedule, do you pray more? It's interesting that in, in in this narrative here we have before us the sinless omnipotent Son of God felt such a great need for prayer that evening, and yet he was weak. But you know what? His disciples, who weren't sinless, who weren't omnipotent, you know what they did? They fell asleep. How, how does that work, that, that, that Jesus being perfect, yet needed to go to prayer, and yet the ones who needed God the most, in that sense, they slept. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't tap into their one resource. How do you pray? Do you pray genuinely? Do you pray accurately? Do you pray tenaciously? Jesus, in his great agony, knowing that he was going to become a curse for you and for I, taking our sins upon him on the cross in so much agony and so much strenuous time, What did he do? He prayed. He went down on his knees and he prayed. And he prayed honestly. He prayed accurately. He prayed tenaciously. He prayed in agony because of yours and my sin. Think about that. Consequences of our sin, the divine wrath that was going to, because of our consequences, the divine wrath was going to be placed upon him. And that was why he was in agony. But yet he still prayed. I invite you now, 
as we close, our, close your notebooks, to walk out of the classroom of prayer and to put into action what we just saw our master teacher teach us on prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. And Jesus, I thank you for your example, for being the master teacher, for taking the penalty of my sins upon you, upon the cross, and for following your Father's will in doing that. We praise you. And Lord, I pray for these here that you may cause them to pray to always pray. Pray without ceasing. Lord, it is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. And Lord, we need you. We are desperately insufficient in and of ourselves. And so I pray that we will always come to you in prayer. Thank you for the opportunity and privileges to pray. We praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.